Good morning. I think I'm supposed to say now that the youngest children can go to Children's Church or something like that. Yes, apparently, because I see them go. Although I'm sad to see them go, but uh, we'll have services where you get to stay with us. Wonderful to be in the house of the Lord. That's where a believer needs to be on Sunday morning to fellowship and to praise the Lord and to be taught from his word. And I pray that this morning God will speak to us through his word. So if you brought your Bibles, please turn to Titus chapter 1. Titus 1, and we will continue our series that we started last Sunday called A Healthy Church. And today our focus is on verses 4 through 9. Titus 1, beginning in verse 4. And where is the, there it is, the clicker. Paul writes to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If, everyone, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Father, we come before you once again to pray that you will unplug our ears and open our hearts so that we will hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. For your name's sake, your name's sake only we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you were here last Sunday, then you remember that um, the lesson last Sunday was that a healthy church is filled with people that, number one, have committed themselves to Jesus Christ, are devoted to him, and number two, are devoted, committed to the local church, to a body of believers. That is foundational to the well-being of any local church. It doesn't matter if you have a charismatic preacher or mouth-watering programs. Those things do not make a healthy church. There are many churches today that fill the pews with thousands and thousands of people but cannot be marked as a healthy church in biblical terms. Today, we're gonna to see that a healthy church is known by healthy leadership. A leadership that is thoroughly biblical in what it does and how the job gets done. That must be true of every level of leadership in the church, from the leadership of youth ministry to the leadership of the charity committee and everything in between. But it must be most certainly true for those who are called as elders and pastors of the church. Why? They set the tone. They establish a leadership culture that will trickle down to every level of leadership in the church. Now, in God's great wisdom, he has ordained 
that the local church be led by elders and deacons, or as we call them here in Garden Chapel, servants. Deacons slash servants are called to care for the temporal, practical needs of the church. Finances, buildings, mercy ministry. I once heard a writer refer to the job of a deacon as a shock absorber. I like that. They take care of things so that ministry can happen. Elders, on the contrary, are to care for the spiritual needs of the congregation. They are called shepherds. They do what a shepherd does. A shepherd leads, cares, protects, feeds, and as such, elders and pastors provide that kind of oversight and that kind of loving servant leadership care over the congregation that is entrusted into their care. Now, this passage that we read this morning clearly talks about elders. Paul mentioned that in verse 5. In verse 7, he uses another word, overseer. Verse 7 says, for an overseer is God's steward. But the word overseer is simply a synonym for an elder. In fact, the New Testament uses different terms to describe that one office, that one position, elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd, different terms, but it's the same function. Now, one of the challenges that I'm facing this morning is that I don't want you to think something like this. I'm not an elder. I'm never going to be an elder. So this passage is irrelevant to me. I don't want you to check out mentally because that is the case, which is the case for most of us. We're not elders, and we're not going to be elders. Yes, this passage is a massive exhortation to those who are currently serving here as elders, pastors, including myself, to live a holy, God-devoted life. No doubt about it. And yes, this is helpful and necessary for you, a congregation, as a checklist, when the time comes around to vote for new elders, this is what you need to be looking for in that candidate, along with the list given to us in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And yes, this is helpful stuff for you to pray for us, leaders in the church, that we will not be arrogant and quick-tempered, that we will be self-controlled, holding firm to the truth of God's word, But having said all of that, these character traits that are mentioned here are character traits that every believer should desire and pursue. I can give you references for pretty much everything that is listed here as a requirement for elders that is also listed as something that as Christians we should go after. To have our hearts and our homes open to other people. To not live self-occupied lives. To be self-controlled in the way that we live. To learn the skill of saying no to our desires. To be sensible. And so my hope and prayer is that as we look at this passage, you will listen with two ears. One ear is like, okay, what does this say about elders? And what does it mean for us as a church? And the other is, what does this mean for me as a believer? 
And that we will pray in our hearts, oh God, make me a person like this, who's not arrogant, but a servant, who's not violent or a lover of money, but knows what it is to be upright and good and holy and disciplined. To be like Christ. This should make us long for changed hearts. A desire to see the power of the gospel at work in our own lives and in our church so that chains of addictions are broken, anxiety ends, and fractured relationships are restored because we live under the submission of Christ. It's a powerful passage for each one of us here this morning. When we talk about healthy leadership in the church, there are many things that we could say from Scripture. This morning, based on this passage, we're going to focus on two. And here's the first one. Healthy leadership in the church is shared leadership. Paul calls Titus his child in the faith, probably meaning with that that he was instrumental in his salvation. But Titus was also a co-worker of Paul. He's mentioned about a dozen times in the New Testament. And it seems, if you look at all these references, that Titus was kind of like a go-to person for Paul. He was a troubleshooter. Here we read that Titus was left on the island of Crete by Paul to strengthen and organize the church by appointing elders. Verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, many years ago, before I ever was a pastor, I became an elder in the local church that we served and in the town where we lived. A friend of mine who attended a different church came up to me a week or two later and said this, should I congratulate you? Or should I offer you my condolences on becoming an elder? He had been an elder for four years. And he said they were awful years. So here's the truth about eldership and pastoral leadership. Being a pastor, elder, is an incredible privilege, but it's also a weighty responsibility. That should not be entered lightly. Hebrews reminds us that elders are responsible and accountable to God for watching over your souls. That is a privilege. That is a responsibility. Which is at times joyful and at other times incredibly hard and messy. Pastor elders sit on the first row, at the, on the first row, and see the best and the worst of people. Paul knew all of that. But he said to Titus, this, this kind of leadership, eldership, is crucial for the health of the church. Unless elders are in place, the church is not in order. A proper leadership structure is necessary. So, Titus, appoint elders. 
That's a little bit different from what we do today. Today, in most churches, leaders don't go around and say, I'm appointing you as an elder. I'm appointing you as an elder. The way it usually works is that elders in the church recommend a candidate, bring it before the congregation. The congregation has the scriptural mandate in Titus and Timothy to assess someone's character and vote yes or no. That's your responsibility as members of a church. But this situation was unique. This is a church plant. There are no elders. There are no elders, therefore, that can recommend a candidate. And on top of that, Paul, as an apostle, probably as the co-founder of this church, has received special authority from God and exercises that by appointing in other churches that he planted elders. Titus is not an apostle. So Paul sends this letter to him, expects him to read this letter to the church so that the church knows when Titus starts appointing elders, he's not going rogue. He has full apostolic authority to do this. A unique situation. Here's the thing I want you to note about shared leadership in verse 5. Paul says, appoint elders, plural, in every town. Leading a church is a team effort, not a one man's enterprise. It's very important. The New Testament presents a model of the leadership in the church, of shared leadership by a community of qualified men existing in paid elders that we call pastors and lay elders. You will not find in scripture what I refer to as the Pope model, meaning that we have a pastor who acts like a Pope and he has elders or deacons and they're just his little helpers and they act like his bellboy. He just tells them what to do. It's not what scripture teaches. Scripture also doesn't teach that we have a bunch of elders that tell the pastor what to do. No, we have a band of brothers called by God to lead his church together for the good of people and the glory of God. Recognizing that those who are being paid by the church are set apart for full-time ministry, for study of the word, who in all likelihood therefore know more about God's word, than some of the other elders, but nonetheless, they serve as a team. It's shared leadership. Such wisdom from God in designing the church that way. Because none of a, no leader has all spiritual gifts, and every leader has blind spots and hobby horses. And so in his great wisdom... God established a church with Christ at his head and a band of brothers qualified and called to share the burden of leadership. Here's the second element that Paul focuses on when he speaks of eldership. Not just shared leadership, but qualified leadership. Verses 6 through 9. The office, the position of elder, pastor, comes with pretty steep requirements. 
found in Titus 1 and in 1 Timothy 3. First one. An elder must be above reproach. Verse 6. Your translation may say, an elder must be blameless, which suggests that you're looking for an elder or a pastor who is sinless. Well, you might as well stop looking right away because they're not there. That's not what the word means. It literally means not chargeable with an offense. In other words, elders must live a consistent Christian life. That is the basis and the foundation of their authority and credibility. Not perfect, but mature. This idea of being above reproach is so important in Paul's mind that he mentions it first in this list and also in 1 Timothy. And here in Titus, he repeats it in verse 7. An overseer, for an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. It's like an umbrella term. Everything else he's going to say about eldership and qualifications fits under the umbrella. He fleshes out practically, what does that look like? What does that mean? He gets very specific. We'll look at that in a minute. But above everything else, above reproach. Note that in verse 7, he says that an overseer must be above reproach. In other words, the list that we have here in Titus 1 is a list of non-negotiable traits. What happens in many churches is something like this. They're in need of elders. And they say, oh, so-and-so is a great guy. And he's the president of this company. And he has wonderful leadership abilities. Let's make him an elder. Does he fit the qualifications in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3? Well, that doesn't really matter. Yes, it does. Because in God's eyes, character always trumps competence. Remember that. Not a sinless person, but someone who can be characterized as above reproach to the point that when you hear of someone being mentioned as a candidate for eldership or a pastor and you know him, you can say, yeah, this is the kind of person he is. Not perfect, has his issues and struggles, but this is a pretty good description of him. Above reproach. Paul zooms in. It's too general. We gotta get down to the nitty-gritty. An elder pastor must be above reproach in his family life. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He must be the husband of one wife. Now, probably in your Bible, as it is in mine, there's a little number right to the right of the word wife. In my Bible, it's number four. Look down at the text, bottom of the page. It gives us an alternative translation. 
In my Bible it says, a man of one woman. And so what is it? Are we talking about an individual that has to be married, husband of one wife? Or are we talking about someone who has to be a man of one woman, whatever that means? Well, there's about four different interpretations here. I'll give you one that I don't think is correct, and then I'll give you the one that I think is correct. I don't think Paul means here that every elder has to be married. In other words, that God forbids single men from serving as an elder. And one big reason for that is that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks highly of singleness and says if you're single, you can devote all of your time and all of your energy to the ministry and you're not distracted from your spouse or your children. But he doesn't say anywhere there, oh, but by the way, you do need to know it's one thing, you can never serve as an elder because you have to be married for that. What Paul means when he speaks of husband of one wife is that the usual situation is for someone who is considered to be an elder that he's married and that he has kids, but it's not required. Literally, what the Greek says is one woman man and seems to point not at the marital status, but at someone's moral capacity someone's moral standing, a one-woman kind of man, a man who lives a sexually pure life, married or single, and if married is faithful to his spouse and such as such is an example to the church and to the world. The world in which sexual promiscuity is not only allowed, but encouraged and applauded. Doesn't mean that elders are above, above sexual temptation. The world is too sick for that, and the pull of sin in our own heart too great, but he puts up a fight. And he has a track record of not giving in because he knows what is at stake is not just his own testimony, not just his family, but an entire church. Above reproach in his family life, committed to his wife, sexually pure. And then Paul goes on and says, and his children are believers. And again, we have this little footnote at the bottom that tells us that another way to translate that phrase is are faithful. In other words, elders must have children that are submissive, obedient, responsive to correction and discipline. So is it that? Or is Paul mandating that if you're an elder, all of your children must be Christians, otherwise you're disqualified? Again, the word doesn't give us much clarity because it can be either, but the context gives us a great hint. The rest of the verse says, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, which clearly speaks about behavior. What Paul is saying through Titus to the church is not 
your children must be Christians. We have no control over that. What he does say is, a man who has undisciplined, disobedient children under his roof, under his authority, cannot be an elder. Or, to put it in the words of 1 Timothy 3, an elder must keep his children under control with all dignity. Not a slave driver, not an abuser. He loves his kids, but he disciplines them because he loves them because he's charged by God to control them, to shepherd them. And then Paul goes on to say in 1 Timothy, if you can't manage your own household, how are you ever going to think you're going to manage the church? Good parenting is not marked by the absence of conflict. It's part and parcel of being a sinner. But it is marked by a proper biblical handling of those situations. And if a man does not handle those situations at all or in a biblical way, he cannot be expected to handle conflict situations in the church in a biblical way. And there's a key role in that for the dad. Together with mom as co-pilot, he is to bring up his children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6. Dads, don't outsource that to mom. Don't say, like, well, you're better at it. Maybe she is. It's your core responsibility. Don't outsource it to church. We will do what we can to help you, support you in the raising of your children. It's your primary responsibility. And certainly don't outsource it to the nanny. They're your children. And so Paul makes it very clear to Titus, this above reproach stuff has very practical ramifications for his family life. His relationship with his wife, relationship with his children. It's all about character, isn't it? Competence matters. We will see it in a minute when it comes especially to the handling of God's word, the knowledge and the teaching and being able to defend it and rebuke those who clearly disagree with God's word. But competence is useless without character. So let's say you're a surgeon and you sleep around. You cheat on your taxes. Can you still be a good surgeon? Absolutely. God says, that won't do in my church. Won't do. And so when Paul continues speaking and addressing, speaking to Titus, he lists a whole bunch of additional character traits that the elder must be marked by or must not be marked by. And it's all character. For instance, in verse 7, he must not be arrogant, self-willed, only wants to please himself, insists on watching his favorite TV program when it's on TV, ungracious. Paul says he should not be quick-tempered, easily provoked, 
short fuse, quickly flying off the handle. Why? He's going to deal with some high voltage issues in the church sooner or later. Got to keep his cool. Got to have self-control. When we think of anger, we're quick to say that there is such a thing as righteous anger, which is true. It's a trick question. Who's the most loving being in the Bible? God. True. Who's the most angry being in the Bible? Not Satan. God. As an expression of his holiness. If we hear about or are confronted with an abusive situation and we don't feel any kind of anger about this awful sin and the destruction of it, something's wrong with us. However, Nine out of ten, probably 99 out of 100 times, our anger is not justified. Because it's not by God's will that's violated, it's by our will that's violated. That's the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger. Therefore, James can say in chapter 1, verse 20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So an elder that, that is quick-tempered disqualifies himself. Paul says he should not be violent. He should not be a bully in actions and in words. He should not be a pushover, but should overcome evil with good, not with evil. He mentions a couple of things that should be part of an elder's life. One of them is hospitality. An elder must be willing to share his home and share his heart, not just give a pat on the shoulder on Sunday morning and a little bit of smile, small talk, hey, how are you doing? Fine, hey, how are you doing? Get his hands dirty. Get to know people. What makes them tick? Where they struggle? How you can pray for them? Paul mentions self-controlled. Another word, is, another word for that is sensible. Being temperate, measured, have a sanctified common sense. The last one he mentions is disciplined. Being able to say no to the desires of the flesh, the pride of life, not being given in to impulses, an ordered life. Not a perfect life, but an ordered life. It's all about character. Well, almost. Because when we get to verse 9, Paul makes this statement. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able, also able to rebuke those who contradict it. An elder must be able to teach. Here's the one ability. Doesn't say anything about personality. Doesn't say anything about personal charisma. Doesn't say anything about educational or things that you've acquired or degrees that you have gained, nothing wrong with that. Character, character, character. And there's one ability. Holding firm to the word of God, why? So that number one, he can give instruction in sound doctrine, and number two, rebuke those who speak against it. Knowledge of scripture, growing in knowledge of the Bible, being a lover of the book, a student of the book, making progress in his own life so that he can teach and encourage and when necessary, rebuke 
and correct. Not to shame, but to correct with the hope of a good outcome. My dad was an elder for 25 years in two different churches. I remember him telling the story years later of how there was a couple in the church had only been in the church for, for a while, young believers, and they were living together. They were not married. And my dad knew part of his responsibility was, along with another elder, to go to their house and to basically tell them that they were living in sin. And he said it was the strangest thing. We got there, and so we addressed the topic, we read scripture, and then we were ready for an earful. But the response was so different. They said, we did not know. No one taught us. No one told us that the way that we are living is contrary to God's word. We want to be obedient to God's word. And the guy moved out. Two months later, two months later they got married. That's a combination of instruction and rebuke. That's what an elder must be willing to do and must be able to do. To teach it and to defend, defend God's word. Doesn't mean he has to attend seminary, great if he does. Doesn't mean he has to stand in this pulpit and preach. He can, he doesn't have to. He can teach one-on-one, he can teach a small group, but he has to be able to teach God's word and defend it. Because there are stewards. God has done us such a favor by giving us these standards for elders, pastors in this church. And quite honestly, we're fools if we do not embrace them, we do not uphold them, if we do not use them when the time comes to evaluate a candidate. Character over competence. So let me close by just saying something briefly. First of all, to us men here. One of the best questions that was asked of me when I was in my mid-20s, maybe early 30s, was this. Mark, what's keeping you from being an elder in five years? Men, to our shame, Oftentimes, women outdo us when it comes to spiritual matters. Study of his word, church attendance, when the Bible clearly tells us that he has given us men a leadership role, a spiritual servant leadership role in our marriage, in our home, in our church, in our community. Let's not squander it. Is it scary? You better believe it. But it's by God's design. And so take that responsibility. Seek out help if you need it. Come to the men's discipleship group on Wednesday night where there's others like you that look to God for help. And to all of us as a church, I say, this is a tall order. This is Christ-like living. All of us fall short in one area or another. And here's the good news of the gospel.
that Christ not only, when he died on the cross for our sin, paid the penalty for our sin so that we are loved and accepted in Christ, clothed with the righteousness of himself, but it also broke the power of sin. We can change. You can change. There's hope. You don't have to be stuck if you humbly come and say, Lord, I confess. Lord, I need help. Here I am. His Holy Spirit is a life and active in your, in your heart. He's given us his word, community of believers, confession of sin as means of grace to grow in godliness. And may God raise up many like that in our church. Father, we ask you for a miracle because in our nature, Lord, we are self-centered, prone to sin, but we are so thankful, so utterly thankful for Jesus Christ and for salvation in him. Grace is not just pardon, it is also power. The power that raised Christ from the dead, Paul says in Ephesians, is the power that is available to us to walk in Christ likeness. What a joy. So I pray right now, Lord, anyone here this morning that is hearing this message and feels everything but hopeful, anyone that feels utter despair because of where he is in life, oh Lord, open their eyes to the beauty and the power of Christ that is able to change us from the inside out. Make us men and women that carry the responsibility of what it means to be a man or a woman. And may we glorify you, Lord, in how we live, how we talk, so that your name be praised and your church is built. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God bless. Have a wonderful Sunday.